0: Chapter 12 of Allan's Wife. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Alan's Wife by H. Rider Haggard. Chapter 12. The magic of Indaba Zimbi. We gained the spot by the stream where Stella had been taken. The natives looked at the torn fragments of the dogs and at the marks of violence and I heard them swearing to each other that whether the star lived or died they would not rest till they had exterminated every baboon on babayan's peak i echoed the oath and as shall be seen we kept it we started on along the stream following the spoor of the baboons as we best could but the stream left no spoor, and the hard rocky banks very little still we wandered on all night we wandered through the lonely moonlit valleys startling the silence into a thousand echoes with our cries but no answer came to them in vain our eyes searched the sides of precipices formed of water-riven rocks fantastically piled one upon another in vain we searched through endless dells and fern-clad crannies there was nothing to be found how could we expect to find two human beings hidden away in the recesses of this vast stretch of mountain ground which no man yet had ever fully explored they were lost and in all human probability lost for ever to and fro we wandered hopelessly till at last dawn found us footsore and weary nearly at the spot whence we had started we sat down waiting for the sun to rise and the men ate of such food as they had brought with them and sent to the kraals for more i sat upon a stone with a breaking heart I cannot describe my feelings. Let the reader put himself in my position, and perhaps he may get some idea of them. Near me was old Indaba Zimbi, who sat staring straight before him as though he were looking into space, and taking note of what went on there. An idea struck me. This man had some occult power. Several times during our adventures he had prophesied, and in every case his prophecies had proved true. He it was who, when we escaped from the Zulu Impi, had told me to steer north, because there we should find the place of a white man who lived under the shadow of a great peak that was full of baboons. Perhaps he could help in this extremity. At any rate, it was worth trying. "'Indaba Zimbi,' I said, "'you say that you can send your spirit through the doors of space and see what we cannot see? At the least I know that you can do strange things.' "'Can you not help me now? "'If you can and will save her, "'I will give you half the cattle that we have here.' "'I never said anything of the sort, Macumazahn,' he answered. "'I do things. "'I do not talk about them. "'Neither do I seek reward for what I do "'like a common witch-doctor. "'It is well that you have asked me to use my wisdom, Macumazahn, "'for I should not have used it again without being asked.' no not even for the sake of the star and yourself whom i love for if so my spirit would have been angry in the other matters i had a part for my life was concerned as well as yours but in this matter i have no part and therefore i might not use my wisdom unless you thought well to call upon my spirit however it would have been no good to ask me before for i have only just found the herb i want "'and he produced a handful of the leaves of a plant that was unfamiliar to me. "'It had prickly leaves shaped very much like those of the common English nettle. "'Now, Makumazahan, he went on, "'bid the men leave us alone, "'and then follow me presently to the little glade down there by the water.' "'I did so. "'When I reached the glade, I found Zimbi kindling a small fire "'under the shadow of a tree by the edge of the water. "'Sit there, Makumazahan he said pointing to a stone near the fire and do not be surprised or frightened at anything you see if you move or call out we shall learn nothing i sat down and watched when the fire was alight and burning brightly the old fellow stripped himself stark naked and going to the foot of the pool dipped himself in the water then he came back shivering with the cold and leaning over the little fire thrust leaves of the plant i have mentioned into his mouth and began to chew them muttering as he chewed most of the remaining leaves he threw on to the fire a dense smoke rose from them but he held his head in this smoke and drew it down into his lungs till i saw that he was exhibiting every sign of suffocation The veins in his throat and chest swelled. He gasped loudly, and his eyes, from which tears were streaming, seemed as though they were going to start from his head. Presently he fell over on his side and lay senseless. I was terribly alarmed, and my first impulse was to run to his assistance, but fortunately I remembered his caution and sat quiet. Indaba Zimbi lay on the ground like a person quite dead. His limbs had all the utter relaxation of death. But as I watched, I saw them begin to stiffen, exactly as though rigor mortis had set in. Then, to my astonishment, I perceived them once more relax, and this time there appeared upon his chest the stain of decomposition. It spread and spread. In three minutes the man, to all appearances, was a livid corpse. I sat amazed, watching this uncanny sight, and wondering if any further natural process was about to be enacted. Perhaps Indaba Zimbi was going to fall to dust before my eyes. As I watched, I observed that the discoloration was beginning to fade. First it vanished from the extremities, then from the larger limbs, and lastly from the trunk. Then in turn came the third stage of relaxation, the second stage of stiffness or rigour, and the first stage of after-death collapse. When all these had rapidly succeeded each other, Indaba Zimbi quietly woke up. I was too astonished to speak. I simply looked at him with my mouth open. "'Well, Macumazahn, he said, putting his head on one side like a bird, and nodding his white lock in a comical fashion. "'It is all right. I have seen her.' "'Seen who?' I asked. "'The star, your wife, and the little maid. They are much frightened, but unharmed.' the frau watches them she is mad but the baboons obey her and do not hurt them the star was sleeping from weariness so i whispered in her ear and told her not to be frightened for you would soon rescue her and that meanwhile she must seem to be pleased to have hendrika near her you whispered in her ear i said how could you whisper in her ear bah how could i seem to die and go rotten before your eyes you don't know do you well i will tell you one thing i had to die to pass the doors of space as you call them i had to draw all the healthy strength and life from my body in order to gather power to speak with the star it was a dangerous business macumazana for if i had let things go a little further they must have stopped so and there would have been an end of indaba zimbi ah but you white men you know so much that you think you know everything but you don't you are always staring at the clouds and can't see the things that lie at your feet you hardly believe me now do you macumazana well i will show you have you anything on you that the star has touched or worn i thought for a moment and said that i had a lock of her hair in my pocket-book he told me to give it him i did so "'Going to the fire, he lit the lock of hair in the flame "'and let it burn to ashes, which he caught in his left hand. "'These ashes he mixed up in a paste "'with the juice of one of the leaves of the plant I have spoken of. "'Now, shut your eyes,' he said. "'I did so, and he rubbed his paste on to my eyelids. "'At first it burnt me, then my head swam strangely. "'Presently this effect passed off, "'and my brain was perfectly clear again.' but I could not feel the ground with my feet. Indaba Zimbi led me to the side of the stream. Beneath us was a pool of beautifully clear water. "'Look into the pool, Macumazahn," said Indaba Zimbi, and his voice sounded hollow and far away in my ears. I looked. The water grew dark. It cleared, and in it was a picture. I saw a cave with a fire burning in it. Against the wall of the cave rested Stella. Her dress was almost torn off her. She looked dreadfully pale and weary, and her eyelids were red as though with weeping. But she slept, and I could almost think that I saw her lips shape my name in her sleep. Close to her, her head upon Stella's breast, was little Tota. She had a skin thrown over her to keep out the night cold. The child was awake and appeared to be moaning with fear by the fire in such a position that the light fell full upon her face and engaged in cooking something in a rough pot shaped from wood sat the baboon woman Hendrika. she was clothed in baboon skins and her face had been rubbed with some dark stain which was however wearing off it in the intervals of her cooking she would turn on stella her wild eyes in which glared visible madness with an expression of tenderness that amounted to worship then she would stare at the child and gnash her teeth as though with hate clearly she was jealous of it round the entrance arch of the cave peeped and peered the heads of many baboons presently hendrika made a sign to one of them apparently she did not speak or rather grunt in order not to wake stella the brute hopped forward, and she gave it a second rude wooden pot which was lying by her. It took it and went. The last thing that I saw as the vision slowly vanished from the pool was the dim shadow of the baboon returning with a pot full of water. Presently everything had gone. I ceased to feel strange. There beneath me was the pool, and at my side stood Indaba Zimbi, smiling. "'You have seen things,' he said. "'I have,' I answered, and made no further remark on the matter. "'What was there to say?' "'For some almost equally remarkable instances of Kaffir magic, "'the reader is referred to a work named "'Among the Zulus by David Leslie. Editor. "'Do you know the path to the cave?' I added. "'He nodded his head. "'I did not follow it all just now, because it winds,' he said. "'But I know it. We shall want the ropes.' then let us be starting. The men have eaten.' He nodded his head again, and going to the men, I told them to make ready, adding that Indaba Zimbi knew the way. They said that was all right. If Indaba Zimbi had smelt her out, they would soon find the star. So we started cheerfully enough, and my spirits were so much improved that I was able to eat a boiled mealy cob or two as we walked. We went up the valley, following the course of the stream for about a mile, then Indaba Zimbi made a sudden turn to the right, along another kloof, of which there were countless numbers in the base of the great hill. On we went through kloof after kloof. Indaba Zimbi, who led us, was never at a loss. He turned up gullies and struck across necks of hills with the certainty of a hound on a hot scent. At length, after about three hours' march, we came to a big silent valley on the northern slope of the great peak. On one side of this valley was a series of stony copies, On the other rose a sheer wall of rock. We marched along the wall for a distance of some two miles, then suddenly Indaba Zimbi halted. "'This is the place,' he said, pointing to an opening in the cliff. This opening was about forty feet from the ground, and ellipse-shaped. It cannot have been more than twenty feet high by ten wide, and was partially hidden by ferns and bushes that grew about it in the surface of the cliff. Keen as my eyes were, I doubt if I should ever have noticed it, for there were many such cracks and crannies and the rocky face of the great mountain. We drew near and looked carefully at the place. The first thing I noticed was that the rock, which was not quite perpendicular, had been worn by the continual passage of baboons, the second that something white was hanging on a bush near the top of the ascent. It was a pocket handkerchief. Now there was no more doubt about the matter with a beating heart i began the ascent for the first twenty feet it was comparatively easy for the rock shelved the next ten feet was very difficult but still possible to an active man and i achieved it followed by indaba zimbi but the last twelve or fifteen feet could only be scaled by throwing a rope over the trunk of a stunted tree which grew at the bottom of the opening this we accomplished with some trouble and the rest was easy a foot or two above my head the handkerchief fluttered in the wind Hanging to the rope, I grasped it. It was my wife's. As I did so, I noticed the face of a baboon peering at me over the edge of a cleft, the first baboon we had seen that morning. The brute gave a bark and vanished. Thrusting the handkerchief into my breast, I set my feet against the cliff and scrambled up as hard as I could go. I knew that we had no time to lose, for the baboon would quickly alarm the others. I gained the cleft. It was a mere arched passage cut by water, ending in a gully, which led to a wide-open space of some sort. I looked through the passage and saw that the gully was black with baboons. On they came, by the hundred. I unslung my elephant gun from my shoulders and waited, calling to the men below to come up with all possible speed. The brutes streamed on down, the gloomy gulf towards me, barking, grunting, and showing their huge teeth. I waited till they were within fifteen yards. Then I fired the elephant gun, which was loaded with slugs, right into the thick of them. In that narrow place the report echoed like a cannon shot, but its sound was quickly swallowed in the volley of piercing human-sounding groans and screams that followed. The charge of heavy slugs had ploughed through the host of baboons, of which at least a dozen lay dead or dying in the passage. For a moment they hesitated— Then they came on again with a hideous clamour. Fortunately, by this time, Indaba Zimbi, who also had a gun, was standing by my side, otherwise I should have been torn to pieces before I could reload. He fired both barrels into them and again checked the rush. But they came on again, and notwithstanding the appearance of two other natives with guns, which they let off with more or less success, "'we should have been overwhelmed by the great and ferocious apes "'had I not by this time succeeded in reloading the elephant-gun. "'When they were right on us I fired with even more deadly effect than before, "'for at that distance every slug told on their long line. "'The howls and screams of pain and rage were now something inconceivable. "'One might have thought that we were doing battle with a host of demons.' Indeed, in that light, for the overhanging arch of rock made it very dark, the gnashing snouts and sombre glowing eyes of the apes looked like those of devils as they are represented by monkish fancy. But the last shot was too much for them. They withdrew, dragging some of their wounded with them, and thus gave us time to get our men up the cliff in a few minutes all were there and we advanced down the passage which presently opened into a rocky gully with shelving sides this gully had a waterway at the bottom of it it was about a hundred yards long and the slopes on either side were topped by precipitous cliffs i looked at these slopes they literally swarmed with baboons grunting barking screaming and beating their breasts with their long arms in fury i looked up the waterway Along it, accompanied by a mob, or, as it were, a guard of baboons, ran Hendrika, her long hair flying, madness written on her face, and in her arms was the senseless form of little Tota. She saw us, and a foam of rage burst from her lips. She screamed aloud. To me the sound was a mere inarticulate cry, but the baboons clearly understood it, for they began to roll rocks down onto us. One boulder leaped past me and struck down a kaffir behind. Another fell from the roof of the arch onto a man's head and killed him. Indaba Zimbi lifted his gun to shoot Hendrika. I knocked it up so that the shot went over her, crying that he would kill the child. Then I shouted to the men to open out and form a line from side to side of the shelving gully. Furious at the loss of their two comrades, they obeyed me and keeping in the waterway myself, together with Indaba Zimbi and the other guns, I gave the word to charge. Then the real battle began. It is difficult to say who fought the most fiercely, the natives or the baboons. The kaffirs charged along the slopes, and as they came, encouraged by the screams of Hendrika, who rushed to and fro, holding the wretched Tota before her as a shield, the apes bounded at them in fury. Scores were killed by the assegais, and many more fell beneath our gunshots, but still they came on. Nor did we go scatheless. Occasionally a man would slip or be pulled over in the grip of a baboon. Then the others would fling themselves upon him like dogs on a rat and worry him to death. We lost five men in this way, and I myself received a bite through the fleshy part of the left arm, but fortunately a native near me asagai the animal before I was pulled down. At length, and all of a sudden the baboons gave up. A panic seemed to seize them. Notwithstanding the cries of Hendrika, they thought no more of fight but only of escape. Some even did not attempt to get away from the assegais of the kaffirs. They simply hid their horrible faces in their paws and, moaning piteously, waited to be slain. Hendrika saw that the battle was lost. Dropping the child from her arms, she rushed straight at us, a very picture of horrible insanity. I lifted my gun, but could not bear to shoot. After all, she was but a mad thing, half ape, half woman. So I sprang to one side, and she landed full on Indaba Zimbi, knocking him down. But she did not stay to do any more. Wailing terribly, she rushed down the gully and through the arch, followed by a few of the surviving baboons, and vanished from our sight. End of chapter 12